Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Up this week, part two of our special coverage of the docuseries, Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami. I had the opportunity to speak with two of the most compelling contributors to that series. First, you'll hear my conversation with former drug kingpin George Valdez, who was instrumental in establishing the Colombian cartel's drug operations in the U.S. As we learn from the series, it was George who eventually handed off this billion-dollar drug smuggling empire to Sal and Willie. Then, I sit down for a conversation with Marilyn Bonachea, Sal's on-and-off girlfriend who helped him run the cartel from prison and who eventually became the key witness in the government's case against him. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch all six episodes of Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami, before listening on. George Valdez is setting an example of cleaning up his life. I didn't walk away because I got arrested. I didn't change my life because I'm sorry I got caught. I walked away because I wanted nothing to do with that world. George's biography, Coming Clean, helps support a ministry by the same name. He speaks at over 30 youth rallies every year and is now establishing a center for counseling and working with youth. Now, my passion is to make more money so I can send a million books and help prisoners to find hope and to find redemption and to look at the world that, hey, if George Valdez changed, I can change too. It doesn't matter how we fall, what matters how we get up. George, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. I'm so excited to talk with you. I'm so excited to talk to you, Rebecca. I want our audience, and also me, to know more about your origin story. You were born in Cuba. How did you end up in the U.S.? So my mother was a very religious person. My parents were among the richest people in Cuba. What happened is my mother did not like it. When we would go to school and Fidel was like, there's no God, there's no God, there's no God. And my mother was very vocal. And yes, there is God, there is God. So ended up being that she decided, hey, I'm not going to let my kids grow up this way, and we're going to go to Miami. Now, I'm 10 years old, and I'm like, so we're going to go to Miami to be with God, right? Obviously, is what I'm thinking. And uh, I think they applied like in 1962, and we were, we were able to leave in 66. And that was really, really traumatic for me because, really? We're going to go be with God, and all of a sudden, 11 of us are going to sleep in a one-bedroom apartment and write down what time... We're going to go pee because everyone had to go to work or school. And I remember telling my father, hey, Dad, I found out a friend of mine takes lunch to school. And I mean, that was like a big deal to me. And my friend said he gets food stamps. And I'm like, Dad, you know about food stamps? And he just nods his head. And I'm like, well, why don't we get food stamps, Dad? And he's like, because that's for poor people. And I'm like, Hmm. holy crap, man. We have not even made it up to poor yet. We got to climb up to get to poverty. And uh, I said, Dad, we're not poor? And he's like, no, no, son, we just don't have any money. And then he pointed (laughs) his finger at me. I'm 10 years old, skinny as a rail, pointed his finger at me in my chest and said, hey, son, you figure out how to get up early and help feed your family. Hmm. 
I've been getting up at 5.30 in the morning ever since that day. But I grew up like that, you know, wanting what I, when I speak a lot today, I talk about this false American dream, one that tells us you have to accumulate and accumulate. So my vision at that time was I'm going to work hard and save money to go to law school. I'm going to graduate by 24. By 30, I'm going to be a millionaire. That was my vision. That was my life. Never did any drugs. All the alcohol <laughs> I drank in my life till the age of 20 could fit into a little teacup. Hmm. Never did nothing wrong. I was like a straight eight. I mean, I was honestly, I think if you look in the dictionary for nerd, there would have been a picture of me. Yeah, but you're better dressed than most nerds. Let's be real. Yeah, right now I am. <laughs> but I wasn't <laughs> back then. I mean, we had different shoes that we took from the Salvation Army. I mean, we were so poor, couldn't even pay attention. So you decided early on that you were going to help support your family by becoming a lawyer. You worked hard in school, and I read that you eventually worked your way to a good job at the Federal Reserve Bank in Miami, all while also going to college. It seemed like you were on the path to make your vision a reality. So what happened from there? At the age of 20, my accounting professor asked me, he's like, hey, George, come work for me. He was a partner at Price and Waterhouse. He did not speak Spanish. And he's like, you do my Spanish clients, and I'll give you a secretary I'll give you office. I'll give you all you need to start your own business. And I'm like, this is the first evidence that there might be a God. I mean, someone's doing mm-hmm. something for me. So I agreed. And I went to work for him. And I'm like, you know, now I can probably save some good money and go to law school. Stay with my, with my vision. Didn't turn out that way, though, right? No, it did not turn out that way. Tell me about that. Well, what happened, uh, he's telling me, hey, I got this client. And he'll pay you $1,000 a month. All you got to do is... Go there every Monday for, you know, a couple, two, three hours and organize their books. And I'm like, wow, $1,000. I mean, that, that was like a goldmine to me. So I went, and I for, never forget the first Monday. It's a little bitty grocery store. This thing is like in those little strip malls in, in mm-hmm. Florida, you know, small. And had a little office in the back. And I walk in there, and I see this paper bag, and it's $175,000. And I'm like... Holy cow, how can these people make... Now, I was so innocent. Nothing bad would cross my mind yet. Nothing. So, I, you know, I did my accounting and all that. Wrote that down. Went to the bank, literally with a paper bag, and deposited the 175000 Next Monday I go, there's 100000 And when the third Monday I go, and I see 100 something, then I'm like, I got to call them in. So I, I called them in. I said, look, Problem here is that I've deposited over 300000 in the last three weeks, and all your sales for the month are like 1400 bucks. I'm like, what gives, <laughs> man? And he's like really stoic, really like straight up like, oh, uh, I'm a drug dealer. Oh, okay. He said, yeah, this is just our place to hang out. He didn't even call it a front. <laughs> he, he wasn't smart enough to call that a front. He's like, this is where we hang out. But... uh I just sell cocaine. You know, and this is what I tell people. I drew lines. I had lines that I would never cross. Never cross. And all of a sudden, I've been seeing these people that can't even hardly read and write. And here they are, and they make all this money, and I'm killing myself to just be able to get a law degree so I can buy my parents a house and, and you know, be a decent human being. So immediately, I justify it by saying, hey, I'm an accountant. I get paid to do accounting. That's how I justified in my mind. 
And so he asked me, he says, do you know how to open foreign bank accounts? Oh. And then I did. Long story. <clears throat> he said, look, we have uh, currency restrictions in our country. And all I want to do is protect my money. There was no money laundering laws at that time. Hmm. None of that happened. And I'm like, okay. So I opened those three. Then I opened another two and four. And all of a sudden, I started to make some money. And my world began to change. He introduces me to his partners who wants to open a shipping company. Now, this guy was pretty rough. You know, he was just your average blue-collar worker type of a guy that making money he doesn't even know how to count. But when he introduces me to his partner, then these people were like serious business people. So what happened is I opened this form bank account, and then the, the head guy, he's 93 years old today, a great man who was my godfather, and uh, he said, hey, I want you to open a banana company for it. I'm 20 years old now. And uh, he's like, are you interested? And I said, look, you want me to be involved in this banana company, which I really thought it was going to be a banana company. <laughs> you did not, did you? Later on, I realized it was not going to be a banana company, but they never sent them to me. And if, if you look at these five people who were the most powerful people in the world in 1976, and you line them up with hundreds of them, and I guarantee you, you could not tell which one's a drug dealer. Because these people were all business people. They had tons of legitimate companies. When they recruited me to handle drug operations, they're like, hey, you just consider yourself the Kennedy of the 20th century. I, I created the first most sophisticated international web that became money laundering that there ever was. You know, I, I started opening foreign bank accounts all over the world, in Switzerland, Tortola, Grand Cayman. And they're like, you'll be in charge of all operations in the U.S. And I was making over a million dollars a month at the age of 21. Where does Sal enter the picture? My dad and his dad, they were best friends from Cuba. And mm -hmm. every day after dinner, they would go to each other's house for coffee. They would rotate until they died. My fear was that prior to my first arrest, that Sal was going to tell my dad, because every time my dad was at his house, it was like, hey, tell George to give me a chance. Tell George to give me a chance. My dad would always be bragging about, I'm flying all over the world with my banana business. He had no clue. Zero clue. Hmm. And I was afraid he was going to tell him. That's why I ended up giving him a meeting. Okay. We learned from the series that you took a meeting with Sal, gave him a chance, then he started working for you, but then you get arrested and hand over the responsibility of running the cartel operations to Sal. Please tell me more about that. I didn't have anybody to hand over all operations at that time. And I'm like, I know him. I believe I can trust him. Little did I know ever that they were going to start running boats and doing all this because that was so against everything that we were, right? So... I said, look, here's the deal. Here's money to buy me 10 kilos. Every load, buy them, sell them, save me the money. And when I get out, give it to me. And uh, when I got out, I went to see him. And I said, Sal, where's my money? I had estimated anywhere between 10 to $20 million. And uh, he's like, oh, no. Well, we stopped working many, many years ago. We don't have any money. Things went bad. And, you know, it was such a betrayal to me, I felt. Yeah. But I'm like, you know what? I don't need, I was, I was already a millionaire anyways, legitimate. And I walked away and I tell people if they kept going, like apparently they did, 
It was the best $20 million I ever spent in my life. I thank God because when they asked me to testify for them, which I also testified for them, I was able to honestly, under oath, say, look, I have to believe that they stopped dealing drugs. Because for me, and I looked at him in the, in the courtroom, I said, for me to not believe that is the biggest betrayal in the world. It's unfantable, and they have to be the biggest SOBs to ever do that. To someone who took him from being dead broke fools, that that's all they would have ever been, to becoming multimillionaires in six months. And it, and it was sad. It was really, really, really sad because I loved him like a brother. Didn't see him much after that. And, uh, and it was good for me because... Uh, history, you know, to show what all that happened. So, anyway, long story. I felt that I was betrayed, but I don't need. I was, I was already a millionaire, anyways, legitimate. I had a multi-million-dollar horse operation. Wait a minute, you had a multi-million-dollar horse operation? Yeah, I was the largest quarter horse breeder in the country. I built a hospital in my farm. Uh, I, I helped devise the first artificial vagina with the University of Colorado. So <laughs> I did not expect you to say that. Yeah, for I mean to collect horses. By the way, let me clarify that to collect semen from a horse. Yeah, I, I, the context I was able to figure that out. So anyway, and and I was making a million dollars breeding horses, and when I got out of prison, I had someone doing everything for me because I was on the parole. So all I did is authorize when the plane would come and not come and pay some very high officials that we had on the payroll. I'm making a million dollars a month for doing nothing. So all of a sudden for me to say, I'm done with this life, people say, was it hard? Well, I used to say that roughing it out was having to go first class. Yeah, it was rough giving up my jets. Yeah, it was rough. The roughest thing, the roughest. It wasn't even rough giving up the million dollars a month. It was the power that came with it. Mm -hmm. That That is the most insidious drug ever. George, let's back up a little. You got out of prison expecting money from Sal and Willie, but they lied to you saying they didn't have the money because they closed down the operations you handed them, but you were still a millionaire because of your horse breeding business. But also, because you continued to work for the cartel for a few years, handling some minimal discrete operations. Now, I want to hear about the moment when you finally decided to walk away for good. One time it was an event, my daughter was sacred to me, my baby girl. It was the most sacred thing that I had. And uh, I was partying with some Hollywood celebrities in my ranch, and my ex-wife dropped her off. And it was shocking because whenever I had her with me, I never had no women or nobody around me. So I told them, hey, keep her in the room. Don't let her get out. But for whatever reason, till today, I would have bet anyone a million dollars that no one could have gotten close to my bedroom door. She did. And she started knocking and saying, Daddy, it's Crystal. And I've never felt so filthy and dirty Mm. in my life. It was like, just if you can visualize you're in a canoe and your child is drowning and you're touching the tip of their finger and you can't save them. And I couldn't open the door because here's the only thing left in my life that is sacred and pure. And if I opened it, I would contaminate her. I went in the shower. I tried to scrub the filth off of me. I went underneath the sheets. And the guy that people used to say, eyes ran through his veins. Uh, I started to shake, and when mm-hmm. I felt that, you know, that that was enough, I uh, I went outside to get water, and uh, she was by the floor crying. And that day, out of nowhere, I said, I'm done. 
I'm walking. So what did that mean, you walked away? Like, how did that look for you? What that meant was that I was done with that world. I had everything a human being ever dreams of, what I thought would ever make me happy. And I was more and more miserable. When I looked at my life, I'm like, look what I've turned out. This is not who my parents raised. Look how many people are getting hurt. Mm. All that was killing me for forever. And then in the morning, I called the head of the, what you all call the Medellin cartel. And I'm like, hey, I'm finished. So you had all these millions of dollars. You had to give them up. Are you happier now than you were then? I'm the happiest human being. I was happier within six months of having nothing because I made up my mind I was going to become somebody else. I'm happy now because I get hundreds and hundreds of letters how people say, hey, if George Valdez changed, I can change. Because at the end of the day, I think that the only thing that makes a difference in a human being's life is the impact you have on another life. So, yeah, I'm extremely happy. It was so interesting to hear your story, George. Thank you so, so much. Listen, it was my pleasure, and uh, I'm glad I got to tell it because I'm glad that we're able to tell people, hey, that there is another way. Thanks again to George Valdez for taking the time to speak with me. Now, here's my interview with Marilyn Bonachea. I was in the witness protection program till 2003. I lost everybody. Everybody that I testified against were my friends. I lost my family. I don't know where they are, except for my son. I have no idea if they're still alive, if they're dead, I don't know. I lost Sal. I lost everything. I even lost my two dogs, (laughs) and they finally died. (laughs) So I ended up losing everything. Marilyn, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel you were very personal in the documentary, and I feel like I know you a little bit already. Are you hearing that from other people who watched it as well? Yes, I'm hearing half and half. I'm hearing, oh, you were the scorned woman who took the millions. (laughs) And then I hear the other side where, you know, it was great watching you, you know, that kind of stuff. I actually think that, first of all, you do not come off as a scorned woman who took millions. I think that anyone who says that is bananas. I think that you really approach your interviews with a lot of heart and humor. And I was really moved by the fact that you are able to recount some very painful experiences or difficult experiences, but also sometimes see the absurdity in them. You know what I'm talking about? I understand. I think especially that comes across in the scene where you get pulled over and you're describing that incident and how, I mean, it really was absurd, um, you know, that that checking the trunk and you sort of not being aware of what was going on. When you think about those memories, you know, is it long enough ago where you're not, you know, feeling the moment anymore and you're just able to see them sort of as images? Or do you still feel them as if they happened to you very recently? I feel them as though they're flashbacks. Like if I see a cop car behind me, I'm thinking, oh, (laughs) flashback, you know. But other than that, I don't dwell on it, no. I would love to hear why you decided to become a participant in the series. It started out as I wanted to write a book. And then it turned into doing the documentary. And I just feel like I have a story to tell that needs to be told so people can make sense of what happened. 
because nobody really knows what happened and why it happened. So what do you think most people misunderstood about your story before the documentary? Well, they didn't understand that. An example, all this happened because Sal wanted the ledger book. And a lot of people don't know that. They think, oh, you know, I was after the money or whatever they might think. But it was actually, what started all this was a feud between me and Sal when he got out in 96 because of the bribe jurors. It just, he started with, bring me the ledger book, bring me the ledger book. I said, no, I'm going to burn it. I'm going to burn it. And our feud turned into this catastrophe. Because <laughs> if mm-hmm. I would have burned it, there would have been nothing. Yeah. It really was amazing to me that really the affection between you seemed to exist even when you were at odds with each other. Is that is that really what it was like? Yes, that's what it was like. I mean, we spoke since then, about three or four years ago, we were talking, we emailed each other. He's like, well, you know, it was your fault for doing this. And I'm like, well, no, it's your fault because you wanted the ledger book. And we kind of like iron things out. And then it was like, I love you, you know, I'll always love you. You know, you're the best and all that kind of like. What was it like seeing the story play out in the way that Billy and Alfred put it together? I thought Billy and Alfred did a great job, not just with me, with the whole, you know, Kings of Miami. Do you think that you were portrayed accurately and that your story was shown fully and truthfully in the way that you intended it to be? Oh, yes. Yes, that's that's for sure. I never got the sense that you were ever operating with any kind of hidden agenda. You seem so open about, you know, everything that you experienced. And I'm assuming that you were also just as open back then, right? Yes, I was. Yeah, you, you don't seem like the kind of person who doesn't tell people how you feel in the moment. No, I will tell <laughs> how I feel. <laughs> so you said you emailed with Sal a few years ago. So there was a point where he was able to communicate from prison? When he was in Indiana, not where he is now, but he got out of Supermax and they put him in Indiana and he was doing like really well because, you know, he became a preacher and, you know, he had his little life going. But, you know, again, what does Sal do? He brings another cell phone into the jail. The second time, because the first one I brought in, the second time, and then he gets caught and he ends up in Supermax. But while he was in Indiana, we were able to email through CoreLinks. That's what it's called. It's like, you know, you have to be approved and they read everything. Can I ask you, and you might not be able to talk about it, I'm curious what it was like living in witness protection, because I know that you were in witness protection for a few years. Was that a strange experience? Did you feel truly safe? I I just, you know, it's it's one of those things that I think we hear about witness protection and see it in movies, but no one knows what it's really like unless someone, unless they've actually been through it. Can you tell me anything about it? I always felt safe. Always. I never felt that I was unsafe. It's very difficult because I got moved around a lot, partly because I would compromise by calling my son and they would find out can't even call your son. How are you going to tell me that I can't talk to my son? You know, so I would get caught doing something like that and I get moved, you know. Then 
the time I was in New Orleans, I decided to have one big party. Why not? I had no friends, no family. <laughs> no, really, I had nothing. I had a new name, a different social security, you know, and then they said I was partying up too much and they moved me to Kentucky. So in Kentucky, another name, another social security number. You know, you live in hotels, like most of the time while they're moving you. It was very difficult. You know, the worst part was not even having somebody to talk to or say, oh, I'm going through this, you know, you're not allowed, of course, to speak about anything like that. So it was difficult, but I got through. Yeah. Did you work while you were in witness protection? One time I got a job. I was so bored. <laughs> I went to work for Rite Aid and I liked it. I know it sounds silly, but it was fun. It doesn't sound silly to me. It sounds like you're a person who, you know, likes being around people, you like the stimulation, you enjoy having like a social network. Right. That's exactly what it was. And working at Rite Aid, I got to see different customers and know who they were. Oh, and I know you need that pack of cigarettes, you know, but I had to leave because I had to testify in Miami hmm. so much. I had to be, you know, going back and forth. And I ran out of excuses with, uh, you know, with my job. Right. It's not like you can tell the manager of the Rite Aid that, hey, I'm in witness protection, so I need a few days off. Yeah, I'll see you later. <laughs> I'll see you when I come up. You got to get someone else to work the register and restock the shampoo because I'm going to be testifying at a major trial. <laughs> That's exactly how it was. I'm curious, Marilyn, I mean, in witness protection, you sort of were living this alternate life and did that period of time make you think at all about what your life could have looked like if you hadn't met Sal when you were 15? Oh, of course. If I wouldn't have met Sal, I don't know what I would have done, but it would have been different. Hmm. And I, I never did anything like illegal. I wasn't into any of that. I was into, that's what my father always taught me. You know, go to school, you know, but whatever you pick, you know, but go to school and become somebody, you know have a normal life and I don't think I would have gotten myself into all that trouble because when I did meet Sal for like the, the third time I expressed to him and he would even tell me he says you know I'm so sorry you could have done more with your life it's my fault you know and that's just the way it worked out I understand that you had a period of your life where you were a teacher is that true Yes, I was a teacher from 1989 to 1991 when Sal got arrested. So you had this profession of teaching. You had the profession, obviously, you became a technically a paralegal, I suppose, as we heard in the great. film. Yeah, yeah. Tell me more about your life. What other kinds of work have you done? Um, what do you enjoy doing? I, I just would love to, you know, the film just makes me want to know you a little bit better. And I, I think that's just part of who you are you drew me in so I just love to hear a little bit more about other things that you've done in your life after I left the bakery which was I was there for almost four years I went into dental assisting and that, that that's what the money I lived off of you know and I had my son and I raised my son going to school and dental assisting so that's what paid the bills hmm. 
you know, I, I'm curious because I imagine I, I again, and I'm, I'm being really honest with you. I really do feel like I, you told your story so thoroughly and beautifully in the film that I felt a, an understanding of you and, and an empathy for you and a connection to you, which I know probably sounds very strange, um, but. I know that there are people who may not understand how you can still have so much affection for somebody who changed your life in such a dramatic way. How do you respond to that when people ask you that question, if they ask it to you? I think they blame me more than him. Is that sexism, you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think. Like, he was the good guy, and I'm the one who brought him down, and he got 205 years because of me. But that's bullshit because he chose to be a drug dealer. I did not sell drugs. You know, I wasn't a paralegal. I was a teacher. And then one day he says, oh, you need to be Mark Dax. He's an attorney. Because that's all you need to be a paralegal is a signature from an attorney. And I had my psychology degree. And I was never planning to be with Sal again. I had moved to New York in 1983. And I came back in 1986 because my my deaf brother, my little brother, he committed uh, a double homicide. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's the only reason why me and Sal got together again, because I was I had had it with him. He was like, can I put the Rolls Royce in your name? Can you buy me a ranch? You know, can you buy me an RV? And I'm like always saying yes, yes but only because I felt like I owed him. Because when my little brother committed murders, I didn't have an attorney and I I was a dental assistant. And I reached out to Sal and I said, Sal, I need an attorney for, you know, for what it is, is what happened. And and he was there on the spot that same night saying, don't worry, don't cry, because I was hysterical, you know, we'll fix this. So when he got in trouble in, in 91, and he asked me, you know, about paralegal, if I would be a paralegal for him. I couldn't say no. I mean, I I should have said no, but I couldn't say no. Because I felt, you know, in my heart, I owed him. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I don't think that... You know, in any other circumstance, if we weren't talking about exactly what we're talking about, it would make complete sense to anyone. And I'm honestly very troubled by the fact that people blame you for the outcome here. I I think that that's typical. I've seen other women treated that way in other cases when they are witnesses or when they cooperate with the police. It's as if the women are responsible for the fact that actually happened when really uh, a woman like you is just telling the truth and, and telling your story, which you have every right to tell. I'm wondering how you feel, you know, living the life that you lived when you see um, stories not like this one, but other kinds of stories about drug dealers and drug trafficking that makes it, you know, that make it more glamorous looking than it is or that sort of glorify it. Are you uncomfortable with that kind of storytelling? No, I'm not uncomfortable at all. Because there, there was a glamorous side to You can't take that away from the 80s and the 90s. At the other times, you know, you don't see Sal running out the back door in a restaurant because the DEA is after him. You know, and those are the little pieces that people don't know. You know, he was a person. And people treated him like a king, king of Miami. But he had feelings. And 
even though he did like some things wrong, you know, he felt bad for what it's worth. At the end of the film, you say that you hope to meet Sal again someday. And I'm wondering what you imagine the conversation you would have with him would be like. Oh, my God, it'd be, we're both Cuban. <laughs> and you're just wondering what happened here, what happened there. It'd just be hours and hours of storytelling. And you still have stories to tell each other, you think, even after all these years? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh. I still have stories. <laughs> Are there fundamental things? I mean, you've talked about a couple of things that people don't know or understand about Sal. You said he has feelings. Are there other parts of his story that you wish people knew more about? That everybody does bad things. But in the end, he was a good person. And that's hard for some people to understand. Can you tell me something about him being a good person that would illustrate that? I mean, did he... Uh, you know, obviously he was very generous and helpful and, and was there when you called him. But what other kinds of things uh, would you say would prove to someone like me who's never met him and probably never will? Like, wh- what what makes him a good person to you? He was um, funny. He was generous. If you saw you were in trouble, he would jump in and help. Um, he just had a good heart. He really... He's not a bad-hearted person. What do you want people to learn from your story? I mean, the, the film, you are at the center of the film, and you talk a lot about your life and your experiences. Are you hoping that there's something people will take away from watching you? There's a lot. I go all the way from being a little girl and being raped by my older brother. Then after that, I went through... Um, Having a fiance, this is recently, five, five years ago, um, he shoots himself in the head right in front of me. Oh, my goodness. So I want to speak about, let's say, being raped. When I was a kid and that happened, I, I, felt, I felt like I had nobody to tell a story to that would leave me. So I kept on getting, being raped. And I want to teach children like go to schools, you know, and and speak and explain, go to your aunt, your uncle, a priest, your teacher. I went to Catholic school, so a nun, you know, whatever. And then I've also gone through, I take my medication. I've been called junkie now for that. And I want, Hmm. I want to express that mental health is, And it's out there now. People are talking about it, finally. But there's always been like a stigma on that. You know, if you're bipolar or you're crazy. I know Sal brought up in court that I was delusional. (laughs) And I was crazy and I was this and that. But I understand that he's trying to save his butt. You know, he needs to get out of jail. So I didn't care that he said, you know, all those things. But I want to speak about that also. And um, I feel like I have a lot to offer. Do I help one person or I help hundreds or thousands? It doesn't really matter. I, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have too much to offer to, to just let it go and, and people not, or one person not understand. I imagine that you have a lot of advice or guidance that you would give to survivors of violence and trauma. Uh, What is something that you tell people when they share their stories with you? 
Yes, they need to express it and not hide it because of shame that nobody will believe them because they're, they're a woman or nobody will believe them because they take anti-anxiety medication or medication for depression. You know, there's hope now. I like what you say about being believed. I, I'm a big believer in that too. And I do think that women in particular are not believed, um, especially when we are more willing to talk about the normalcy of mental health than men. And so I think that that's really a really important message. I'm curious, Marilyn, has your life changed since the series debuted a few weeks ago? My life has changed a lot. I'm more introverted. I'm more private. I, when somebody asks me, where are you from? I get nervous because of, you know, witness protection. You can't tell where, where you are. There's, there's still leftover, just leftover stuff. I'm not who I used to be and I want to be, but it's hard because we're going all the way from me being arrested to being a fugitive. And then from there, <laughs> I go into witness protection. So it's been what, 15, 16, 17 years of going through this. So you talk a lot about all the things that have happened in your life and you're really, you know, fascinatingly retrospective. Do you think forward? Do you have like big hopes and dreams looking forward? Yes, I want to go to schools and educate what I've learned. You know, maybe somebody won't have to go through that. That's my dream. And when I'm done with that, I'm moving to Jamaica. And nobody's ever seen me again. <laughs> now, that sounds like a dream that I can get behind for you, Marilyn. And thank you so much for talking with me. You are a fascinating woman, and I really enjoyed our conversation, and I enjoyed watching you in the documentary. Thank you so much. Thank you. That means a lot to me. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Marilyn Bonachea and George Valdez. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe or follow this show to stay tuned for all new episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue, and our producer is Shana Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.